According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again as we return to where we've been. Let's go to Luke, Luke uh, 23, 5 through 7. We uh, looked at Herod uh, last week, so we'll review that a little bit. And then we'll uh, get to the retrial before Pontius Pilate. If it was not for the Gospel of Luke, we wouldn't even know that the proceedings before Pilate are broken down into two parts with an intermission. And uh, if all we were reading was the Matthew, Mark, or John records, then it would just seem that it was all one great big proceeding before Pilate, and then he was sent off to be crucified. But uh, according to Luke's record, we identify the fact that uh, there was an early portion before Pilate, and then uh, his proceedings were suspended as uh, Jesus was sent to, uh, to uh, Herod. And then uh, Pilate's proceedings were only resumed when uh, Herod's uh, court returned him without indictment. So this is what we're looking at here. All right, Luke 23, uh, verses 8 through 12. 23 verses 8 through 12. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You for the privilege that we have to assemble this morning. This is a a grace provision, Father. We didn't earn it or deserve it, but You've made it uh, available to each one of us, and we thank You for that. We ask for Your hand of blessing upon our study, that You would open the eyes of our understanding, give us ears to hear. We thank You, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is uh, Pilate's escape clause as we come to it. Now, I've got to back up. Your point of confusion came in main point three or main point two? You have two threes and then a four. Okay. Here's where I believe the confusion came in. Main point one of the outline, Pilate opened his court for the morning with a question for the religious leaders. And all the subpoints here, A through E, dealt with Pilate and the religious leaders. Under main point one, there was an A, a B, a C. Point C also had a one and a two. And then we were back to a D and an E. All of that was under main point one. Then main point two, Pilate opened Jesus' trial with an inquiry into Jesus' kingship. Now we have the interchange between Pilate and Jesus. And uh, in this... There was an A and a B. And here's where I think some confusion might have come in, possibly. Uh, Under the B was a 1, 2, and a 3. All right. The fact that Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world, and we had to understand the interchange between the kingdom not of this world and then what is the future kingdom. Because the future kingdom is going to be a terrestrial kingdom. It is going to be on planet Earth. And then after the 1, 2, and 3, notice what happened on that next slide. After the 1, 2, and 3, we went to a C. Okay? A C. And that's the same A and B there that you had before. Okay? And that may be where I lost folks. So I tried to get clever on that. <laughs> so you understand that in between here, right? Do I have a laser on here? Maybe I don't have a laser on here. In between that B and the C is the 1, 2, and 3 from the other slide, right? Okay. Okay. Okay, so now we're good. Main point three, Pilate finds an escape to this trial when he learns that Jesus is a Galilean. And what we read throughout all these accounts is that Pilate is looking for a reason. He's looking for an excuse time and time again. He just wants to be done with his trial. And he does not want to convict. He's finding innocence. In fact, we're going to have three declarations of innocence in the process of this. 
Um, Pilate finds an escape to this trial when he learns that Jesus is Galilean. He thinks this is his way of escape. Oh, Jesus is a Galilean, is he? Well, then, out of my court, send him off to Herod. Um, reading from Luke 23 then, verse 4, Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. This is innocence declaration number one. But they kept insisting, saying he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. And when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. Oh, really? Galilean? Is that where his ministry started? He started there, now he's here? Well, does that mean he's actually a Galilean by, by birth? Is that his jurisdiction? And so when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at this, at this time. Remember, this is Passover season, and, and uh, observant Jews, and, and of course Herod's not Jewish, but he's Edomite. They're kind of half sort of Jewish. They're observant anyway. His father was observant of Judaism. And likewise, uh, it's, it's just the place to be. And so uh, whether or not you're really all that passionate about the religion or the doctrine or the principles of Passover... Jerusalem is where the action was, and this is where Herod is at this time. And so now we read in verse 8, Herod was also very glad when he saw Jesus because he had wanted to see him for a long time. He had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And we have conflicting ideas about Herod. Herod Antipas ruled from, and I still haven't fixed this slide, uh, year to year. Okay, I was going to go back and put the numbers in there. Um, he through 87 or 37 AD when he finally ended his uh, his life Herod Antipas ruled from and then you've got the article that we read last week in Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia um, a previous event had left Pilate and Herod Antipas at odds with one another an event we looked at in Luke 13 uh, Pilate was responsible for the death of a considerable number of Galileans he had mingled their blood with the blood of the sacrifices we're told and uh, that episode had actually created a wedge between Pilate and Herod, and uh, they'd been on uh, not too good a term since that point of time. Uh, this is going to be an event, though, that's going to patch that all up. <laughs> this is gonna, they're going to be good buddies from this, uh, from this moment forward. The, the somewhat contradictory descriptions, Herod had a desire to kill Jesus, according to Luke 13, 31, and then also a desire to see what miracles he might perform in Luke 23, 8. And that sparks a lot of comment, and that sparks no little uh, speculation and so forth. Uh, how could these both be true? Well, we accept them both as true because Scripture says they're true, although we should be quick to point out that the desire to kill Jesus is not coming from his own lips, necessarily. The desire to kill Jesus was word that was brought to Jesus from the Pharisees at that time in Luke 13:31, And so... If it's not true, then it may simply be a lie. It may simply be uh, a falsehood that the Pharisees were promoting there in their desire to get him out of Perea. Maybe it was a, it was a, uh, a play on their part to try to get him into Judea where they could lay hands on him more effectively. Regardless, uh, I don't think there's much of an issue if you have uh, conflicting desires. We have conflicting desires all the time in a lot of different applications. A desire both to kill somebody and to see what miracles he might perform is not necessarily mutually uh, exclusive. All right? And it may be uh, that both are absolutely true with respect to Herod's motivations. We're not sure. In any event, his trial before Herod is quite short. How long can a trial go on when the defendant won't say anything? <laughs> All right? He stays absolutely quiet and uh, doesn't say a word. Um, verse 9 of Luke 23, he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. So, you know, how long does a trial last when the defendant's not going to say anything? You know, and eventually the judge gets tired of wasting his time, you know, because he wants to get back to his, probably to his drinking or, you know, his women or whatever it is that King Herod would occupy his time with. So, uh, quite short because Jesus refused to open his mouth or speak any word. This, by the way, is what launched us into a recognition of when did Jesus stay silent and when did Jesus 
confess the good confession, right? That he made the good confession in the presence of Pontius Pilate. And, and we want to glean uh, that application for ourselves because there will be times that the Holy Spirit will say, just stay quiet, just stay quiet, don't open your mouth, don't respond. And then there'll be other times when you're going to be provoked and the Holy Spirit will, will goad you where you can't stay silent, where you have to stand and make the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And uh, I, I appreciate the way that our Savior set this up then as, uh, as an example for us to follow. All right, so that then is main point three with the subpoints A, B, C, and D. There's also an E. This occasion will allow Herod and Pilate to mend the fence and get along. In fact, from this day forward, we're told, in verse 12, Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. For before, they had been enemies with one another. But this event's going to cause them to uh, proceed forward on a, on a friendship basis. All right? Something else to keep in mind. <laughs> when your multiplied adversaries are becoming friends with one another, um, how does that happen? All right, and uh, <laughs> what do we do about it? Okay, different things there. I will fix that slide at some point, but just when I get that slide fixed with the dates for Herod's reign, um, I'll be done with it. We'll never go back to that slide anyway. So <laughs> there you go. All right, point four then. The last thing we've got to deal with now is the retrial. Jesus is brought back into Pilate's custody, and Pilate has to once again uh, reopen his proceedings. So, for this, let's go ahead and go to, well, I guess we're still here. We're in Luke 23. Let's stay here. Verses 17 through 19. We have uh, the parallel accounts in Matthew 27, Mark 15, and John 18. There's a Passover tradition. A Passover tradition to release a prisoner. And this is going to now become Pilate's next attempted escape. He's tried several things up till now. He's going to try this also. A Passover tradition to release a prisoner. Now, this is interesting. Every gospel is in agreement on this. Um, that there is this particular tradition and an opportunity maybe to release a prisoner. And, uh, and yet... They don't want him. They want Barabbas instead. All right, Luke 23. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people, verse 13, and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you have made against him. That's, the, again, a restatement of the first declaration of innocence. Nor, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. So now there's two judges, two courts that have proclaimed him innocent. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. <laughs> you know, uh, you're innocent, so we'll just flog you and let you go. Is that a <laughs> an interesting condition of release? In our system, of course, when the person defended is found innocent, then they're released. They are, you know, innocent until proven guilty and you don't flog them before releasing them, saying, okay, you're free to go. Let's just beat you a little bit before uh, we put you on the street. All right. Then verse 17. He was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. Now, this gets a lot of speculation, a lot of criticism uh, on the part of um, Bible critics and skeptics and different folks uh, because they, they don't find this as a tradition or they don't find documentation of this practice in non-Christian sources. They don't find uh, other corroborating history to back this up, to say, well, we don't have Roman records that, uh, that this was their annual custom or annual practice. Um, and it's, it's quite interesting. We could plunge into some things there and, uh, and explore it. There actually is precedent for it, not simply limited to the Jewish people, limited to other conquered people in the, uh, within the overall Roman universe, uh, practices at various holidays to appease the gods, uh, goodwill gestures, and so forth. So it's not unknown as a concept. It's just simply not documented um, related, to, uh, related to their dominion over Judea. And, uh, you know, that, that bothers some folks. I don't, it doesn't bother me any, but... In any event, I suspect this is going to be something that will, like every other element 
of uh, derision on the part of the God-haters that eventually, at some point in time, uh, archaeology will, in fact, uncover a, a manuscript somewhere or a, uh, some kind of written reference that will, that will uh, agree with this um, as everything else is done, right? They've, they've mocked the Hittites' existence. They've mocked uh, so many things. They've said, well, we don't, have, we don't have secular records that pertain to that. You know, we don't have secular records as to Darius the Mede, so that must be a Bible invention in the book of Daniel, uh, until eventually archaeology finds it, and lo and behold, you know, uh, they mock the, the walls of Jericho falling out, where they mock all kinds of things. And uh, I think this is going to be something similar. Uh, every gospel record is unanimous that uh, this was a practice, maybe uh, limited to the governorship of Pilate, but in any event, he uh, was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. And uh, this way he thinks this is his, his escape clause. And yet it's not going to work because uh, the crowd has already been whipped up into a frenzy by the religious leaders. And we see that here. Verse 18, But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. In fact, he's actually guilty of the very charge they brought against Jesus, that he was an insurrectionist, that he was disloyal to Rome, that he was leading a, a rebellion. All right, And Jesus, of course, did no such thing. Now, here's a prisoner who actually did that. Here's a prisoner who did lead a rebellion, who did stage an insurrection. And in the process of that, murdered whatever uh, Roman officials that he had Murdered. I mean, this is a guy that, that deserves crucifixion. He deserves the, the, the highest penalty that Rome would mete out to a, uh, to a non-citizen here in terms of the death penalty. And uh, so you, you recognize what's happening here is, is a powerful demonstration of what's really happening at the cross. Jesus is our substitute. He is taking our place. And, and he himself is innocent. We're the ones who are the sinners. We're the ones who have violated God's absolute standard of righteousness. But Jesus is accepting the punishment, the wrath, and the judgment in our place. And uh, Barabbas serves as that visible illustration. So Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. All right, now that's God-breathed and inspired. This is the Holy Spirit's opinion, not my opinion. This tells us the motivation that Pilate had in his, in his heart, wanting to release Jesus. This was the will of Pilate. He wanted to release Jesus. Again, not my opinion. Read it and, uh, and deal with it. All right. <laughs> but they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them a third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt third declaration. So Pilate's first declaration, Herod's declaration, and now Pilate's repeat is the third time he has three declarations of innocence. I will punish him and then release him. But they were insistent with loud voices, asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. So Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted, and he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Okay, now this is largely similar to the accounts that we're going to find in uh, Matthew, Mark, and John. In fact, it's longer than some of the accounts we're going to find in these other records. Real quickly, let's just scan through. I don't think we'll spot a whole lot different here. Matthew 27, 15 through 18. At the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at the time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And I'll actually give you some vocabulary on this. The notorious prisoner named uh, Barabbas. I suppose if you can't be famous, you should at least angle to become notorious, right? <laughs> Is that a backup plan? Actually, it's not so good. <laughs> All right. We don't want to be either famous or notorious. How about that? And... Um, when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. And he was really surprised, shocked. He, he expected, you know, if it's a choice between this innocent man that the religious leaders are envious of, that the very traits that caused the, the, the religious leaders to be envious would cause the people to be 
appreciative, who caused the people to be loyal and, and loving and, and desirous of, of Jesus' release. Uh, you know, why are the religious leaders envy, envious? Because, because of the influence Jesus had with the people, that he had followers, that they, that they were listening to him, paying attention to him, they were praising him. They were celebrating his miracles. Just five days ago, they were, they were throwing the palm branches on the ground and singing Hosanna and citing Psalm 118 on the, uh, the Palm Monday triumphal entry. And, uh, and yet, this play doesn't work. He's thwarted in this. And, uh, and so it's interesting. All right. Over to uh, Mark 15, 6 through 10. At the feast, he used to release from them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the crowd went up and began asking him to do as he'd been accustomed to do for them. So Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he is aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. And uh, again, it's the religious leaders that influenced the crowd. The chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. It's quite remarkable. And if, if you ever do a study on um, crowd manipulation, all right, how do, you, how do you motivate the mob? And, and even better, when you motivate the mob to the point where they think it's their idea, they don't know they're being manipulated. They don't know that, uh, that there's puppet masters behind the, the scenes that are working on them. It's a, it's a fascinating study. We see it played out in modern politics. We see it played out in marketing and advertising. We see it played out, sadly, in churchianity today, where uh, the mobs get whipped up into their, into their uh, worship mode. In any event, we have that description there. Finally, then, a single verse in uh, a couple of verses there in John 18, verses... Um, 39 and 40. This is where he's washed his hands. What is truth? And he goes out to the Jews and he says to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a listes, a robber like the two that he's going to be crucified in between. So, so much for this attempt. <laughs> okay, Pronouncing him innocent, beating him and releasing him, not good enough. Uh, sending him to Herod. Maybe Herod will kill him, for, you know, whatever. I don't think, you know, Pilate really, whatever Herod would have decided, if Herod would have convicted him and killed him, then Pilate would have at least been thankful that, that it wasn't on his hands, and he could go back and tell Mrs. Herod, okay, right? Because remember, she was the one having the nightmares, saying, you know, don't, don't kill this man. We'll see her here in a moment. Um, and, and that didn't work. Herod sent him back and said, you know, resume your trials. And so now the prisoner release idea. Maybe here's another way I can get out. Nothing he's doing is working. Nothing he's doing is working. And that shouldn't surprise us because what's, what's really at work here? God the Father's predetermined plan. God the Father crucified his son according to the foreknowledge and predetermined plan of God. Jesus will go to the cross no matter uh, how hard Pilate works to try to keep that from happening. All right, point B then, a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. We've already looked at these verses. A notorious prisoner named Barabbas, or possibly Jesus Barabbas. And you've got the verses there, Matthew 27. These are the only places in the Bible Barabbas is mentioned. Never, He doesn't appear again anywhere else in the Gospels, anywhere in the book of Acts. Anywhere uh, in the epistles. All right, Barabbas. Eleven New Testament uses, and we've seen them all already. Strong's number is 912. It's not even a Greek name. Barabbas um, comes from the Aramaic bar, meaning son of, and uh, Abba, Abba father. All right. Although... It's conceivable that it is uh, not exactly son of a father. I mean, who's not a son of a father? Um, who's, you know, uh, it could be that there's another etymology behind Abba uh, rather than father, but that gets debated. We don't really know. Uh, there are a few manuscripts, by the way, where his name is Jesus Barabbas. 
And uh, those manuscripts are interesting. They get commented upon a lot. They're old manuscripts. Josephus, I think, referenced them. Uh, I know that uh, Jerome referenced them. Eusebius referenced those manuscripts that called him Jesus Barabbas. And in particular, it's, it's, it's uh, featured in these Matthew verses where uh, Pilate comes down and gives them a choice. Which Jesus do you want me to release? Jesus Barabbas, called Barabbas, or Jesus called Christ? And so they had a choice of two Jesuses <laughs> to release. If, in fact, those manuscripts are um, uh, accurate. Uh, in any event, I don't think it matters uh, as a matter of doctrine or a matter of interpretation which of the, the variant readings is correct, a, a, a Jesus Barabbas or Barabbas, as it were. I think it's more likely that, that scribes would have removed the name Jesus than inserted the name Jesus in these awkward spots um, as far as that goes. He's notorious. He's... Uh, outstanding. Sometimes the word is used in a positive light. Sometimes the word is used most likely in a negative light. There's only two New Testament uses. Uh, and this is one. And the other one is a very positive light. Uh, these that are outstanding among the apostles. And the uh, adjective here is episemos. E-P-I-S-E-M-O-S. E-P-I-S-E-M-O-S. Episemos. And a, a semea is a, is a sign is a wonder, a sign, a, a, an event or a person or a thing that, that you will look at and you will identify with its significance. You see, uh, and so it's used very commonly as a, as a sign, something that's significant of God's dealings with God's people. And then you compound that with the prefix epi, an episema, somebody that you look at and say, this is somebody who's significant, somebody with a significance about him. What is his significance? Okay. And it might be that significance is a, could be a better English translation if we were to really convey that sense. What are they, what are they known for? What are they known for? And uh, we're probably um, hampered <laughs> in our, or maybe not, maybe, we're, maybe our generation is the best generation to identify with this because we are so driven by celebrity. You know, and, and, and there's really no explanation for it. You get these, you know, and, and some of them you wonder, do they really have talent? How do they, how do they get these, these record contracts? I, I guess, does Justin Bieber sing? Is that, is that what he does, you know? Or, or, or the, the Kardashian girls? I mean, what do they do? I don't know what they do. They, 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 but they're celebrities, and everybody knows them. Okay? What are they known for? Are they outstanding or are they notorious? <laughs> and, and basically, you can get known by being known and then you can get more known. Well, we want to be known for the right reasons is what we want to be known for. And so, um, these uses here, uh, only two in the New Testament, Matthew 27, 16, is Barabbas. He was a notorious prisoner. But then Romans 16, 7, um, and in, Here's a verse that gets no shortage of debates. Romans 16:7. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my Junius, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. All right. And the problem there, not to open a can of worms this morning, but Junius is uh, most likely a feminine name. And uh, depending on how you handle that then, um, all the feminists want to look at that and say, look, there's a, there's a female apostle. There's a female apostle, okay? And you've got to solve two issues in that verse. Uh, Andronicus and Junius, if it is in fact a female name, it could be a masculine name with a feminine spend, uh, spelling. But even assuming the fact, okay, I'll, I'll, we'll grant that Junius is a girl, um, the fact that they are outstanding, notorious, famous, um, among the apostles, among the apostles, does that mean that they themselves are apostles? 
Only if you take it that way. It's not necessary to take it that way. It's, a, it's actually a, a more natural reading that they are not themselves apostles, but, but among the apostles, they're known in, the, in an outstanding way. All right? Uh, if that makes sense. So um, it'd be like when I, at the Schaefer Conference, and no fewer than, I think, nine pastors um, came up to me and asked me how my son was doing. And in some of those cases, uh, they had actually seen him more recently than I have, all right, because those are pastors that go to Kiev and teach in the, in the school and so forth. And so to draw a parallel as far as being maybe not outstanding, but let's, let's use well-known, all right, or, or some, so forth, we could say that Bob the Son is well-known among the pastors at the Schaefer Theological Seminary Conference. You see how that works? But he himself is not one of the pastors at the Schaefer Seminary Conference. But he's well-known among the pastors at the Schaefer Seminary Conference. All right? Likewise here. Adonikas and Junius don't have to be apostles in order to be well-known among the apostles. And I think it's actually much more natural that they're not, because nobody else here that he's listing is an apostle. Um... When he, and he's talking about helpers, and he's talking about uh, volunteers and servers and those that have supported him in, in different, different contexts there. So, anyway, that's a debate for another day. I think, uh, well, we're teaching Romans, right? So, we'll, we'll get to this when we get to chapter 16. So, outstanding or notorious. The uses in the Church Fathers, uh, Martyrdom of Polycarp, 19.1, and uh, in Josephus, um, I don't remember why I listed those other than I liked them in my study. Should be able to just open this up. It's not going to open. Okay, I'll uh, figure out how to do that, and uh, we'll look at that later. Josephus should work. Oh, that's not working either. Wars of the Jews. There was a certain woman that dwelt beyond Jordan. Her name was Mary. Her father was Eleazar of the village of Bethesub, which signifies the house of Hyssop. She was eminent, that's our term, for her family and her wealth, and has fled away to Jerusalem with the rest of the multitude and was with them besieged therein at this time. And guess what? All of her fame and all of her wealth and all of her notoriety isn't going to save her. All right, so that's the use there. Bizarre that I can't open up the martyrdom of Polycarp. Why is that not Dan? Why is that not working? How did you open it? Oh, okay. Oh, well, one of these days I'll learn how to use my software. Outstanding among the apostles. <laughs> All right. Martyrdom Polycarp 19.1. Maybe by next week I'll learn how to pull that up. Uh, he was among the murdering insurrectionists. He was uh, attempting to overthrow the government. And uh, one way you can do that is if you kill those in government. <laughs> All right. Uh, one way or the other, you're going to have new political leaders if you kill the current political leaders. That's the theory anyway. I'm not advocating I'm just describing. He was a murdering insurrectionist. By virtue of his murder, he's going to be able to bring about a regime change. 
and hopefully, you know, you get the, the leader you want or someone that will then be more compliant or someone that will be more supportive of your, of your uh, goals. Ultimately, of course, the, what the uh, uh, folks wanted to do was to throw Rome off entirely and bring in the kingdom. Okay? And how, uh, how insane is that? I think it's like our kingdom mindset that a lot of churches have today. <laughs> like we can somehow force the kingdom of, of God on earth to be manifest even though our king hasn't returned yet. Can we make the kingdom of heaven appear on earth? When will Christ return? Christ will return when the Father tells him to return. And Christ will establish his kingdom. Christ will destroy this present cosmos when he establishes his kingdom. And every Christian attempt to somehow uh, be transformative is uh, satanically, tragically um, motivated. And I have no doubt that they love Jesus and they're well-intentioned, but sadly they are blinded as far as what salt and light is. Salt preserves a meat. Salt does not turn the meat into something else. All right? Salt is a preservative that delays the, uh, the eventual uh, decay of whatever meat that's being preserved. All right? But it doesn't turn the meat into something different. If you salt your pork or you salt your beef or you salt whatever it is you're salting and you're preserving, doesn't change what it is. And the idea that we're, we as salt and light are going to change the world we're living in when Scripture promises that the world we're living in is going to get worse. It is, evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And uh, the whole idea of the, the, the post-millennial uh, lunacy of trying to make this world a better place and bring in the kingdom ourselves and then hand Jesus his kingdom when he arrives, won't he be thankful? Um, you know, oh, it's horrid. And yet, their idea is that they're going to throw off Rome. Okay, Now, what motivates that? Because the book of Daniel says the stone is made without hands and it comes from heaven. It comes crashing to the earth and then it will grow and fill the whole earth. It doesn't happen in the hand of man. They're not going to, they're not going to overthrow Rome. No matter what they do, they're not going to overthrow Rome. And yet they think they can. And I suspect... Um, I suspect that a, a large part of their motivation is the perceived independence that they had when they threw off Greece. When the Maccabeans revolted against Antiochus Epiphanes and they established their Hasmonean throne. And they, uh, they felt that they had won and fought their, their glorious independence. To them, that's the golden era. And, uh, you know, the uh, great heroes of that, of that war for independence. Great, a great holiday, you know, the, the Hanukkah tradition and the, and the, the glories of, of uh, what they've achieved. And that Hasmonean throne, when they put a Levite, put a crown on a Levite's head. They didn't restore the Davidic throne. That line of David was still being preserved, but the throne of David was still empty. And what were they really doing? I believe they were defying the book of Daniel. Daniel showed Babylon, Persia, Greece. Greece was to be replaced with Rome, and it does get replaced with Rome. Nowhere in that pattern was there a place for the Jews to to break free from their oppression and to establish their own golden era and view that as the heyday of, their, of their, uh, their own achievements, which they still do to this day in so many ways. Okay? It was the era that founded rabbinic Judaism. It was, you know, the rise of the Pharisee party. It was the, that, that intertestamental period, that Maccabean era is, is a fascinating study for a ton of different reasons. And yet all of it was in defiance of the plan of God. All right, so too with uh, these insurrections. You know, somebody sends me a paper and wants me to review what I think. Is it time for Christians to take up arms and to reestablish an American government 
pattern after the um, American Revolution? Do we, do, we, do we overthrow the present Obama administration so as to create an American government that is more in line with the original Constitution? <laughs> I, 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 have, I have that paper in my possession and I replied to it. All right. And uh, specifically addressed uh, the, uh, the failure to submit as, as per Romans 13. If we have the government God has given us, what are we doing? What are we doing? All right. Well, the descriptions are unanimous. In Mark 15:7, he's a murderer. He's an insurrectionist. Likewise, Luke 23:19 and 25, he's a murderer. He's an insurrectionist. He deserves death. The insurrectionist deserves death. And all of this uh, stuff in terms of uh, the martyrdom of, of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for example. He wasn't martyred as a Christian. He was executed for his part in the assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler. He just happened to be a Christian pastor, and so they turn him into a martyr in any event. Murdering insurrectionists are deserving of death. He's deserving of death. He was also a lestace, a robber, John 18:40. These are the guys that, uh, they're not uh, the cat, uh, cat burglars that sneak in in stealth and steal your wallet without you knowing it. These are the guys that kill you and then plunder your body for the, for the loot. And uh, like the robbers that Jesus Christ has crucified in between. So the terminology makes it abundantly clear that this man deserved crucifixion. Okay, let's go to Matthew 27 and let's get the last detail here on this. The last couple of details on this. Matthew 27. Because here we're introduced to Mrs. Pilate. Scripture doesn't tell us her name. There are legends that name her Procula or also Claudia. It's even conceivable that it could be a combination of the two. Or you just call her Mrs. Pilate. Pleaded for Jesus' release. Matthew twenty seven nineteen. So we have the attempt here, the notorious prisoner release, and the people were gathered together in verse 17. Whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus called Christ. For they knew that because of envy they had handed him over. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas to put Jesus to death. All right, so point C then. Mrs. Pilate pleaded for Jesus' release. Now he's got lots of reasons. He already has enough reasons to try to release Jesus. Here's one more. Okay. The pleading of his wife. There are a number of legends that, that came about in the early church fathers and so forth. I don't hold much credence to any of them, that uh, she was a secret Christian or that she would later get saved or that she would become, you know, uh, so forth. I think a lot of that's a lot of romantic idealism that creeps into different things. Uh, I don't doubt, of course, that she had nightmares. The Scripture said she had nightmares. All right. And then how would any pagan respond in a superstition? One thing you can, you know, you can say what you will about the Romans. One thing you cannot say, uh, they, were, uh, they were a superstitious people. I don't know that there have ever been a culture or society in the history of the world nearly as superstitious as the Romans and uh, how they would view their different portents and their dreams and, and so forth. But there it is. So, uh, who's he more afraid of, his wife or the crowds? Let's see. <laughs> but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas to put Jesus to death. Persuasion, okay? We study persuasion in a number of different contexts, particularly as it relates to our persuasion of the gospel and our placement of trust and our, the relationship between persuade and believe when it comes down to that. His final hope is to throw it to the people that the people might overrule these religious leaders, but that's not going to work either. Playing the crowds against the religious leaders didn't work. Playing the crowds against the religious leaders didn't work. Because the... Uh, the chief priests and the elders, 
They've been working these crowds for decades. They've been working these crowds for centuries. They have a religious hold over the people, a loyalty over these people that uh, the, the occupying governor is not going to have any opportunity to, to try to overcome or try to manipulate. When it comes to the dumb masses, the... Um, <laughs> the uh, sorry, that's a radio quote from... Okay, Neil Bortz, you, you caught on to that? All right. But the masses that uh, don't know any better, they only know what they're told, they only know what their manipulators want them to know, um, they're going to they're gonna be... Uh, Manipulated into this herd stampede routine, and here it is. So, uh, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas to put Jesus to death. And it's, uh, you can see the frenzy here. The governor said to them, uh, you know, why? What, what shall I do with this Jesus who's called the Christ? They all shout, crucify him. Why? What evil has he done? Can you name one charge? And there's no charge. There's no reason. There's no explanation. All there is is the demand. Crucify him. Crucify him. And uh, they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. You know, when logic doesn't work, just go with volume. <laughs> you know, just keep repeating it louder and louder and louder and louder. And eventually the temper tantrum is finished and, and they get their way. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting. All right, now that's that can't be tolerated. You know, any any riot that's that's a direct affront against Rome, and that has to be that's going to and it's going to result in a butcher bill. It's going to result in death. It's going to result in injury to his legions. It's going to result in in uh, things he doesn't even want to go to because that then reflects negatively on him. Then he has to go answer to Caesar for why he can't govern more effectively. Why uh, he can't keep the, 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 the Pax Romana. Why he can't... These uppity Jews, he has to keep butchering them. That's not desirable. They're obviously not afraid enough of Rome. They need to be cowering in more fear where they won't rise up. And so it reflects upon him as a governor. Makes him look bad. He's already on thin ice anyway as far as Caesar's concerned. Pilate was in kind of uh, hot water anyway. So he saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. Now, you know, we, we talked about the way that only Rome could authorize the crucifixion. Here, he's authorizing it and commanding that they're the ones that do it. So, handing him over to be crucified. And some of these, you know, their, their allegiance to Caesar is, is quite telling. When they say we have no king but Caesar, I think it's quite telling. The um, Again, in Mark 15, it's very similar to what we just saw in Matthew. What shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? The shadow back, crucify him. Why? What evil has he done? No answer. That question has no answer. He's done no evil. They shouted all the more, crucify, crucify. So wishing to satisfy the crowd. When the crowd has their bloodthirst uh, whipped up, what's going to satisfy that? Well, they've got to have the blood they're crying for. And then finally, Luke 23, 20 through 24. And this will be our final passage. Luke 23, 20 through 24. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. They kept calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. Why? What evil has this man done? I have found no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent. They were insistent with loud voices, asking him to be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. Hmm. You know, what do you do? Give way to the crowd? You know, the, um, the no king but Caesar line, the, uh, the uh, allegiance that they're holding there, 
Uh, I think it's it's remarkable. It's it's a brutal piece of honesty that doesn't always come out when a when an unbeliever can can explicitly state whom they're serving, and yet uh, there it is. Okay, well that concludes the outline. We'll come back next week and begin a new episode. Looking forward to that. We're a few minutes early, but this is a this is a good place to stop. And do I type that in here? Well, there it is. Why didn't that work 20 minutes ago? Ah. Okay. Well, thank you. That would be good to know. Such is the story of the blessed Polycarp. Is this the verse I'm looking for? It's going to be really disappointing after all this work trying to find a stupid verse that has a mention of a word. Such is the story of the blessed Polycarp, although he was martyred in Smyrna along with 11 others from Philadelphia. He alone is especially remembered by everyone. So that he is spoken of everywhere, even by pagans. He proved to be not only a distinguished teacher, that's your adjective, the adjective for notorious or outstanding or distinguished, well-known, is attached to the noun didaskalos, teacher. Okay? Um, (laughs) A distinguished teacher, an outstanding teacher, a notorious, famous teacher. Probably one that didn't have embarrassing moments trying to get a software to work but also an outstanding martyr whose martyrdom uh, all desire to imitate since it was in accord with the pattern of the gospel of Christ. And actually, in later centuries, this kind of became an issue. Martyrs were lining up to be martyred for martyrdom's sake, whether or not God had assigned it or not. You know, let's, let's, do you want to be an imitator of Christ? Do you want to be an imitator of these martyrs? And, and do we start to idolize these martyrs? You know, I mean, I appreciate what they've done, but if I'm not assigned that, then... You know, am I going to sign myself up for that to, in some kind of a artificial way to demonstrate how much I love Jesus? Or what am I doing? All right. So by his endurance, he defeated the unrighteous magistrate and so received the crown of immortality. Now he rejoices with the apostles and all the righteous and glorifies the almighty God and Father. And blesses our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. The Savior of our souls and helmsman of our bodies and shepherd of the Catholic Church throughout the world. Okay, thank you. Martyrdom of Polycarp. It's well worth reading, by the way. It's not, it's not scripture, it's not Bible. It's well worth reading and uh, opportunity to do that. All right. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the opportunity we have to study and to see, Father, the, the trial was a sham. But, Father, it was uh, the, the vehicle and the means by which you sovereignly directed to put your son on the cross. Not in, uh, not in a human punishment, but in your divine punishment, that Jesus Christ might become uh, the wrath-bearer, that Jesus Christ might become uh, the object of of wrath, that is, ultimately, we're the ones deserving of it, Father, and yet he received it. And I thank you for that substitutionary death. I thank you for the the, uh, vicarious atonement. And I rejoice, Father, in what was made possible because of his faithfulness in our place. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.